Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here and a very warm welcome to another episode of Tall Poppies, the podcast. I hope you're managing okay during this very strange period we're experiencing all over the world. It's interesting to note that now, more than ever during the current pandemic, the world is looking to science for solutions and answers. Virologists and other medical professionals, as well as scientists, of course, are in demand to help shed some light on the current situation. Certainly, most of the time, we see viruses as the destructive enemy. Yet, rather exceptionally, my guest today, a neuroscientist, has in the course of his research been able to harness the abilities of a virus and utilise it in a positive way. Away from the challenges the world is facing during this pandemic, we're also living through another one of the greatest of scientific endeavours, and that is the attempt to understand the most complex object in the universe, that being the brain. Researchers are devoting massive amounts of time and energy to exploring what brains do, and new technology is enabling them to both describe and manipulate that activity. In the last decades of the 20th century, it was neuroscientists, the likes of Oliver Sacks, who highlighted the wonder of the brain. Sacks was most famous for his 1973 memoir, Awakenings, which later became a film with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Today, one of the most listened to podcasts in the world is indeed hosted by another neuroscientist, Sam Harris, who's an American author and philosopher. Well, it came as a surprise to me to discover that here in Germany, one of the country's leading neuroscientists is indeed Sydney-born Matthew Larkham. For me, it's just absolutely obvious that there's nothing more interesting than the human brain that we know of in, in the universe. And it, it is an incredible object that stands out in the universe as far as, as, as we can tell. And something that we understand less about than probably anything else. Matthew graduated with a degree in physiology from the University of Sydney and completed his PhD at the University of Bern in Switzerland. After finishing his postdoctoral research training with the renowned Nobel laureate Bert Suckmann at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg, Matthew became a professor in the Institute of Physiology at the University of Bern. In 2011, he was appointed a professor at the Humboldt Universität in Berlin, where he now leads the Larkham Laboratory at the Charité University Hospital. The Larkham Laboratory's goal is to understand the cellular mechanisms that underlie the ability of the cortex to link sensory information with previous experience. It's just incredible. Even now, when, when I record from a neuron, it's a great pleasure almost uh, I can't call it surprising anymore but but it's it's such a feeling of wonder to watch this cell you have to watch it either on an oscilloscope or, or these days more likely on a, on a computer screen um, and and you see this this amazing really fast event that takes one thousandth of a second but is an incredible shifting in electricity eventually you're recording the current um, that goes across the membrane of a cell wow. and, and, and is representing this event that goes on in a nerve cell that is the signal that it eventually sends to all the neurons that it's connected to and that is the lifeblood of nervous tissue. Matthew is the son of two scientists, but initially did not set out to study science, but rather the violin at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, before eventually moving over to science. Nonetheless, music making has remained an integral part of his life, and together with his wife, the violinist, 
Heather Cottrell and their two daughters, he has settled in Berlin. Well, I met up with Matthew Larkham in late February 2020. Matthew Larkin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a great honour to meet you and to get to know some of your work here in Berlin. And thanks for finding time for me. Of course, it's a great pleasure to meet you. (laughs) But this particular podcast, it's always interesting to hear about where people come from and their background. You, of course, have been guest of honour in our salon. It all started back in Sydney. And I'm always very interested after the salon talking to people what they remember. And everybody was saying, wow, his dad is 80 and a marine botanist. What sort of an influence did that have on family life? Oh, yeah, it was a big influence. And I think it really is due to him that I ended up being a scientist. Yeah, he was a marine botanist, and the place which he had to go to collect samples was on a, on an island on the Great Barrier Reef. And so we would go there from time to time. He went there, of course, many times a year. And so there were many times when he was away for a week or two. Then he would collect samples, bring them back to his laboratory and uh, do research on it. And uh, every now and again, we get to go and see what he actually did. Yeah, that, that of course, is a really idyllic way to do science, to go (laughs) to the Great Barrier Reef and and essentially dive in the water and collect uh, samples and then bring them back. On the other hand, I was never really inspired by the work that then went on in the lab, which is basically, in his case, taking what looks to a small kid like a bunch of seaweed and uh, <laughs> and putting it in bottles and so on. Um, and, and I was always really inspired by the brain from a very early age, from, I don't know, maybe from, I think, from about the age of 10 or so, I was reading books, popular magazines and so on. on this. I don't know where that came from, but, but I was always into that. Yeah. Of course, your mum was a scientist as well, and I'm just trying to imagine the discussions at home. Yeah. So one of the things I appreciated as a kid, and, and appreciate really now, I suppose, was that the discussions that happened at the dinner table and so on were not dumbed down for kids. They, they just, as far as I could tell, just had normal conversations that we could join in on and they had a very kind of matter-of-fact way of talking about the world and facts about the world um, as though things were just there to be to be talked about and understood I don't consider myself to be particularly intelligent or in particular not to have a great memory and so on not not the classical geniuses and so on I'm definitely just an ordinary person in this respect but I the one thing that I found very simple was deducing something from from the set of facts that were given to you and not in any some not any great sense but but just I think from from the kinds of conversations we had it was just natural to infer things from from the set of facts you had in front of you and so those sorts of things came naturally whereas remembering great lists of facts and so on was, was always for me very difficult. And I wonder whether or not that's not an advantage in, in hindsight to, to not be particularly good at remembering things. The only things I really remember are the things that have worked out myself as opposed to being told and, and, and uh, studied. It's funny you should say that about dumbing things down for children because a few years ago I was writing about a children's opera and there was a children's opera in the part of the Cologne Opera House and the music that they were performing were really quite difficult things for most adults anyhow. Kids didn't seem to have a problem at all. And I do wonder sometimes if maybe that's a mistake that we make. Yeah, I think so. Actually, I have what I think is a radical opinion about uh, educating kids because I think... I I take the analogy of language and, and... and I think that applies really to learning in general, particularly for kids. And and there I think you notice that kids learn a language in a different way to adults and and they tend to imbibe it in, in a way that, in particular, you notice they get the accent right. And so they really hear all the nuance of the way that a language is used. And what I take from that in, is that not just in languages, but in, in, in the world in general, they're, they're kind of like sieves. What they're not doing is some sort of explicit organisation of what they're looking at. I think kids get things very organised and explain to them 
what the procedure is and then never deviate from this procedure because if if uh, if you deviate from the procedure they'll be confused but but i think this is exactly wrong that that in fact just like with language you don't have to explain them the grammar and so on in fact that will confuse them and, and that will make things very difficult it doesn't matter if there's a million exceptions and so on that they imbibe all of this what they do for themselves is organize some sort of internalized rules that they can't say explicitly what they are but what the system is if you like and they do this in in, in every respect in, in anything that they learn what you lose in fact when you grow older is this ability and and then you need to organize things and you need you need to have a a set of you have to have an explicit description of of how you do things and how you learn things and it because it appears that way to adults they think oh well it, it must be 10 times so for for children whereas i think it's exactly the opposite very interesting. You mentioned language there, and of course, I always consider music to be a type of language, and mm. music was a very important part of your childhood, and in fact, you went on to tertiary study and started out as a musician. All of those things that you were describing there sort of come into music. We're sort of, we're confronted by all sorts of different things all the time, all these different challenges, and, and sometimes chaos that we have to actually make sense of, and, mm. and rhythm, and, and, and language, sound, and all the things that go with it. What was your experience as a kid with music? Well, I think that's absolutely right. So, so I also think music is very much a language, but it's a language that, that involves much more in a sense because it, it delves deeply into emotion. It's very, uh, very primal. And in terms of my experience, uh, so my, my mother was the only one of my two parents that was in any way musical. <laughs> For whatever reason, I think she was very keen that, that my sister and I would learn musical instruments and so we both started playing the piano I think around about the age of six or so and then my sister the violin and, and I just basically tagged along because um, my mother was ferrying my sister around to lessons piano lessons and violin lessons and it made sense that I would also have a, a lesson in this context but I was always deemed to be the one that was not very musical and my sister was the very musical one and, and this remains the case and, and <laughs> is, is absolutely true. She's, my, my sister is just a very, very gifted musician, very, very um, inspirational musician from, from the soul, so to speak. And I felt like I was the hanger-on in, in a musical sense, but that also was, was okay. It was more like an activity that I just came to expect occurred. In particular, I, I spent a lot of time playing with the Sydney Youth Orchestra on weekends. That was a, a regular Saturday afternoon event and uh, a little bit like sport. And, and that just kept on going and turned into Australian Youth Orchestra and then, then into, it was, it was just an event. It wasn't until I think I was about 14 years old that I actually got inspired. And, I, and the first inspiration for me was playing with other people in a small group. And all of a sudden, I could see the reason why mm. you might want to play music much more clearly. And, and so for, it was from about that age that I really started working, if you like, and trying to improve my, my violin. We've mentioned it already, you started off at the conservatorium in Sydney, you moved across, your interest was computer science to start with, and you said the brain always fascinated you from when you were very young. I can understand that. I mean, what could be more fascinating? Is there anything in the world that's more fascinating than the human brain, really, is it? Right, I mean, I exactly agree with that. For me, it's just absolutely obvious that there's nothing more interesting than the human brain that we know of in, in the universe, and it... <laughs> I'm naturally somewhat biased by this point um, since I spend my, my entire days looking at the world from that perspective. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is an incredible object that stands out in the universe as far as, as, as we can tell. And something that we understand less about than probably anything else. It's at the same time this wonderful, mysterious object in the world and at the same 
time you can always introspect and just explore this this thing from the other side which just from from my point of view is just a wonderful and unique enterprise How prepared did you feel you were to actually face the challenges that awaited you when you got to Europe? Mm. Well, um, it was quite a culture shock to arrive in Switzerland and then have to find the way that they lived and, and, and so on. But at the same time, um, I guess I was 25 years old, arriving in Switzerland uh, to start my PhD in, in the laboratory there. Well, first of all, I should say we... we we were only going for two years in the first place. We had then, by then, uh, we were married, and and my wife she got into a violin class with Igor Ozum, who was and is a famous violin teacher um, at the time, teaching in Bern. And because she got a place in his class to do two years overseas, and we just never came back again. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, it was it was a wonderful time. I had a I had a a fantastic supervisor. Hans Lusche, who was a great scientific supervisor and mentor. But in terms of success, the interesting thing was that halfway through my PhD studies, we were actually scooped by a, a world-famous laboratory with a Nobel Prize winner um, at its head. And, uh, and in fact, the f- principal investigator on, on the study that scooped us was a another Australian who subsequently returned to Australia and is, is now in the branch of neuroscience that I work in, a very famous, almost household name, Greg Stewart. The Nobel Prize winner was um, Bert Sackmann. Mm. So the, the Stewart and Sackmann paper that came out in, what was it, 1995, completely decimated my PhD because it was, <laughs> uh, it was on the subject that I was exploring but was done infinitely better than, than than I was doing it at the time and 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 really showed how how this should be done but for a little while there it felt like I was not very successful at all but this turned it out to have a silver lining the, being scooped like this because what it was about was the new territory of trying to record from the very thin fine structures that come out of neurons um, that are called dendrites um, which after the Greek for a tree, so that, that basically the branches that, that you see when you look at a nerve cell. And up until that point, it had been almost impossible to record from these. And I had turned my attention to that during my PhD and thought I was, was more or less on my own trying to discover how to do this um, before Greg Stewart. And basically, since we were scooped, I could go to the, the, the Nobel laureate who ran the lab and say, well, I've been working on the same problem. And because there weren't many people working on this, it was, it was in a sense, a golden ticket because um, he was quite ready to take on somebody who's basically just finished their PhD and uh, is ready to continue in a subject area where almost nobody had any experience. And so I was able to take over more or less where Greg Stewart left off in, in this laboratory and basically continue the investigations into the properties of the principal neurons of the cerebral cortex. So up until that point, I've been working in the spinal cord, and uh, and so I got to see for the first time the cerebral cortex under a microscope in this laboratory in Heidelberg, and uh, and I was just blown away. It, I, it's indescribable the the experience when you first see it. And, and they had been working on an improvement, the visualization of tissue. And they'd worked out a way to look into the tissue so that you could go a few cell layers deep and, uh, and actually see in, in, with crystal clarity for the first time these neurons that were being kept alive in the dish, as it were, 
it was like taking a slice of say the amazon jungle or something and then you could see these all these neurons in all their glory and you could just look at that and, and think well that's what makes us intelligent The other thing that, that's just fantastic about the, the branch of, of neuroscience where I've got my principal training from, from these years and from my PhD is called electrophysiology where you, you basically record electrically from, from nerve cells. And so I was recording then from, from these neurons for me for the first time, although for this laboratory it was quite routine by then. And that's an experience that is also indescribable, watching the, the neuron fire, as in come to life. And uh, I, I never get tired of this experience. It's just incredible. Even now, when, when I record from a neuron, it's a great pleasure, almost, uh, I can't call it surprising anymore, but, but it's, it's such a feeling of wonder to watch... This cell, you have to watch it either on an oscilloscope or, or these days more likely on a, on a computer screen. Um, and, and you see this, this amazing, really fast event that takes one thousandth of a second, but is an incredible shift in uh, electricity eventually. You're recording the current um, that goes across the membrane of a cell wow. and 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 is representing this event that goes on in a nerve cell that is the the signal that it eventually sends to all the neurons that it's connected to and that is the uh, the lifeblood of of nervous tissue when you say recording you're recording the activities that are happening there what, are, what are the sort of things for people like myself to sort of really understand the sort of things you're able to get from these records can you explain that to me this has changed a lot so back then we would record from single neurons and and look at the electrical impulses of a single neuron and we try to work out how the transformation from the connections from other neurons was made such that the neuron decided that it would send this emit this signal and so essentially we were trying to understand the input output function of a neuron what how it what what is calculating and how it decides that now's the time to emit a signal and back then you could do this either by the technique that Bert Sackmann invented called patch clamping which is a relatively sophisticated way to record from a neuron and is still the gold standard way to record electrically from from a neuron or you could do it with uh, various other methods that uh, are typically where you just record signals nearby um, the, the neuron. And, and here you get, let's say, a qualified interpretation of what the cell is doing that's not as rich and, and where you can't make as, as many uh, conclusions. But the advantage of doing that way, which is equivalent to perhaps sticking a microphone in the ocean and listening to the sounds of lots of <laughs> lots of fish, for instance, yeah. um, then, then you can record from many neurons at once. So that, those were more or less the, the, the methods that were available to us. Imaging was just coming in, and, uh, and since that time, neuroscience has transformed. There's been a massive, a couple of revolutions, and, and now you can do just amazing things that we couldn't dream of at the time so the the business of recording from a cell these days or, or more recording from many cells is transformed it's it's now done on the one hand the electrical recordings uh, are now done with complex arrays of electrodes that can record thousands of of neurons at a time this is getting ever more complex and what's really been the major revolution is to switch to optical methods and uh, and the, the buzzword is something called optogenetics and this word comes from the fact that at the same time that you're you're pushing optical methods you're using uh, genetic engineering essentially genetic manipulation to engineer 
proteins to get cells to express the necessary proteins to to have optical properties either to flash with light or fluoresce with light when they're active or active to light just like your retina for instance is receptive to light that's because it has various proteins that can transform light into electricity so once you know the sequence for these proteins you can express them in any neuron you like and uh, at that point you can make any neuron you like light sensitive and now you can play god with this neuron and you can you can cause it to fire you can prevent it from firing and you can do this in all sorts of wonderful ways now and you and you can do it in in specific cell types wow. which has transformed everything because obviously if you if you're dealing with something like the amazon jungle and you would like to focus on on what's going on in any given in this case plant mm. <laughs> you it's it's tremendously useful to be able to say well i just like to see what's going on in the plants that are like this under these circumstances and and uh, all of a sudden this this is possible and that can essentially can focus the laser beam at any point you like in nervous tissue and and you combine that with a uh, a, a way of moving the laser beam uh, very quickly around it's a little bit like a television which has a an electron beam if you like that's whizzing over the the screen you've got essentially the same capability in the brain now and mm. if you combine this now with wow. with neurons that fluoresce yeah. you can essentially in real time in a living animal now just go hunting for activity in in the brain and that's been an enormous revolution so now it's possible to to look at the activity of specific neurons while an animal is really thinking and and doing something behaving in front of you and uh, that that's been a, a a massive transformation and uh, I, i say to people starting neuroscience these days that it's moving so fast even at this point that the the number of tools you have far outweighs the number of ideas we've got and and what what you what you really need now is just a good imagination for combining all the possibilities you've got and asking the right questions what about ai how does that assist in this type of research oh that's a really good question so for for the longest time i would give lectures to students saying that ai is just so far behind that it uh, all it basically tells us is that we don't really understand anything <laughs> and that uh, that our conception of a of a computer is just nothing like the real thing as it were and in the past few years there's been a revolution here as well and it came with a relatively banal insight actually because they had been looking at artificial neural net networks for for many decades in fact and they'd essentially been trying to understand this from bottom up principles and 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 it was thought that you needed to keep it simple to do this and that the more complex you made the artificial network the harder it would be to understand it and then somebody had the bright idea just to add more layers to to the artificial network and it just started to do things at uh, levels that rivaled our ability to 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 do certain things so on certain problems what what are now called deep neural networks meaning lots of layers mm. um the, these deep neural networks in the last 10 years have just burgeoned and now are able to do some things better than humans such as for instance face recognition or the the standard the one that caught, caught a lot of people's attention was the ability first to play chess and go more recently so now the by far the best go or chess player in the world is a, is a deep neural network that plays both these games at at levels that are just spooky uh, the deep neural network that now plays chess better than than any human alive um and also in fact any other computer program because in the meantime the normal stream of ai had managed to crack computer uh, chess playing i should say so i think two decades ago the grandmaster in chess was beaten but this particular there's a deep network now in a single morning going from not knowing how to play chess and and playing lots of chess games to itself can now beat 
the best computers. They loan the the grandmasters, so it's it's gotten to very spooky proportions, and then that's really impressive. And that so AI is now I think a, a player, if you like, in trying to understand intelligence and the brain. We're approaching a new wall, if you like. It's becoming more and more clear that although you can solve certain problems, there are still problems that are incredibly difficult even for deep neural networks to crack. And the problems that they do really well are problems where the information is more or less complete. So a chess game is a good example where you're not missing any information here. Everything you need to know is on the board. And and then, of course, you've got to learn to to do this, but you can just do lots and lots of repetitions uh, of learning. And, and, and each time a deep neural network just accumulates expertise, if you like, in a way that just makes them better and better and eventually better than, than humans. Um, but the things that humans still do vastly better, actually, than, than even deep neural networks are problems where you don't have all the information, where you need what, what we would call intuition, where, where you have to develop intuitions about, or, or, which is nothing other than, if you like, a... a a framework or a set of predictions about what you imagine is there in the absence of of the information that that you're given so things like for instance driving a car Mm. uh, you may not have all the information that becomes more difficult you can be shown every example in advance but even still that that's somewhere where you could say maybe uh, deep neural networks are are still getting close but then other kinds of problems, certainly when at the point that you get to, let's say, interpersonal exchanges with, <laughs> with, with other, <laughs> other agents, in this case mostly humans, of course, now it starts to become very unpredictable, particularly if the whole point is to remain unpredictable and so on. Now you can easily tell the computer from, from the human. That's at this stage. <laughs> right, but I think it also tells us a lot about what's going on in the brain. So, so in the end, uh, this is where my great interest is, in yeah. fact, is, is trying to work out why it is and how it is that the human brain, and actually I, I guess brains in general, and in particular mammalian brains that have a super-duper cortex <laughs> um, that, that is basically the seat of intelligence, how they solve these these problems and I do believe we're getting to some kind of understanding part of the discussion at our salon evening was was also around influences we did a couple of exercises we saw a couple of things and we we understood you know perhaps better than ever exactly the sorts of things you're working with you mentioned or before you used the term you know playing god a little bit what what sorts of things can you actually influence in that way in this work? So in, in that particular domain that I was talking about, you can use light to essentially activate any neuron you like and any, well, uh, let's say, not, I wouldn't say it's any neuron. Yes, it's any neuron if a priori you, you've gone to the trouble of expressing, of um, getting the neurons to express the particular proteins you need. And then your next problem is getting the light to those neurons, which itself is is not a simple um, problem to solve, but can now be done with ever-increasing effectiveness. So we're still far from the position of being able to, let's say, take control of all the neurons and, and make them do what you want. Mind control, for instance, is, a, <laughs> is out of the question um, at this point, in, at least in any kind of really uh, deep sense. But you, you can do some pretty cool things. I mean, there, there are examples of getting a mouse to run around in circles and then, and then turn in a particular way when, when the light is shone in, in, um, on the right neurons at the right time. There are some things that look a little bit like mind control, but, but it's still... Well, first of all, it's impossible at the moment to to control enough and specific neurons um, that you could do anything with any kind of precision. And, and second of all, we still don't really understand which neurons you would have to excite at, at, at what time. So the, the, I would guess that for the foreseeable future, this is 
not on the cards. But nevertheless, if you compare what we're able to do now with what we were able to do even 10 years ago, and, and certainly 20 years ago, it's uh, chalk and cheese at this point. I think one of the things that really impressed me the day that I visited your laboratory is um, the speed that things were starting to happen. Right, so, so what was going on when in, in that particular experiment was one of the ways that you deliver the new instructions for your, for your cells, that is the instructions to generate the proteins that, that make them light sensitive, uh, is to use a virus, which is <laughs> topical um, uh, right at the moment. The, the <laughs> you can take a virus and use it as the, as the vehicle to infect uh, living tissue and manipulate the, start to express particular proteins. And this is now commonplace in science, not just in neuroscience, but in, in most of the biological sciences. And it involves taking a virus, inactivating it in the sense that you, you, you stop it being dangerous and, and uh, you take away the, the capability to go from one cell to another cell. So you put it in the cells you want and, uh, and from that point on it just stays in those cells. So it's not a, it's not a virus anymore in, in the natural sense. Mm-hmm but it's doing the work that you need it to do. And of course, you, you've first and foremost um, add to the, the virus's sequence the necessary code to make the proteins that, that you want. Now, after that, you're dependent on the machinery of the cell and the interaction of the virus to produce the proteins that you need. And this takes time. I mean, if you look at the coronavirus, I think it has. Uh, I think they're, they're imagining it's got a week or two of, of time where it incubates, meaning it replicates, mm. and it has to replicate enough that you would see symptoms in in that case. And and same now, when you use a virus in a safe way, in in the laboratory, you still have to wait up to weeks for it to replicate enough that well, for it to produce enough proteins that it becomes useful to you. And now that's that's actually been okay because you can, of course, just wait around and, and uh, put the, the tissue off to the side and so on. The way it's normally done is you express this in a, in a living animal and then, and then you take the tissue from the animal or indeed use the, the animal in a behavioral experiment weeks down the track. But what has become a relatively recent phenomenon has been that neuroscience has had access to human tissue. And this comes about because in operations uh, done on, on, in particular, patients with epilepsy, which is a relatively common procedure, there's very often in the surgical procedures done for the patient's benefit, there's tissue that has to be extracted in order for the the surgeon to do what they need to do in the part of the brain that that they need to get to and that tissue typically gets thrown away or was for a minute, for a long time just thrown in the dustbin and and that of course is is a shame from everybody's point of view including the patients usually and then with the patient's permission it's, it's become quite common now to take that tissue and use it in in the laboratory for experiments now the the only remaining problem from the scientist's point of view is that the tissue will only last a day or two before it dies because it's it's not now oxygenated like it should be by the bloodstream and so on. So that kind of precludes the use of these viral techniques that that needed weeks wow. to to express the the proteins. And and what we've been working on recently are, are so-called fast expressing viruses. So there's a a few viruses that for specific reasons about the way they they interact with the cells um, replicating machinery can produce proteins extremely fast and if you can manage to do this in a few hours then you're off to the races in in uh, human tissue and then you can start to do all of the things that could only have been done in animal tissue by waiting many weeks for the virus to express in in the living animal you can now do in human tissue under the microscope and and so we we have been taking advantage of that recently 
and indeed just taking advantage of the fact that we have access to human tissue, trying to work out the same old question that, that, that I started with, which is what's the computational power of individual neurons, which I would claim is far greater than most either neuroscientists or, or uh, computer scientists think is invested in the single units of a, of a neural network. And what's becoming clear is that in, say, rodent species, the, the complexity of the computations that can be done at the single neuron level are far higher than, than was ever thought. And, and our latest study in human tissue showed that it's even greater in the human tissue as far as we can tell. So our, our latest um, publication was on these principal neurons of the of human cerebral cortex and where we were able to show that they could compute functions that were considered off limits until now that that uh, single components in a in a neural network shouldn't be able to do and 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 yet they can do them we are now ramping that up to try to combine those experiments with this this method optogenetics that I mentioned before so that we can take full control if you like yeah. of the, of the neuron and and really test what its input output uh, capabilities are or what it's what it's actually calculating number of the people that you've mentioned, neuroscientists, Greg Stewart was one, there's yourself, they're Australians. Mm. And they're right up there at the top mm. with the best of them. Any idea why that's the case? Is this particular field of study well supported and uh, nourished in Australia? <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, I think um, as a fraction of GDP, it's not as well supported in, in Australia. And on the other hand, as you say, that there are standout scientists in fact i think they're dotted all over the place not unfortunately just in australia but mm. all around the world very similar situation to what happens in music and find musicians also dotted all over the world who are australian mainly for the the same reasons that both these pursuits are not that well supported back in australia but then you're asking what how is it that you get these pockets of brilliance I think both in science and music come back to that mm. what I think is that the Australian mentality is is one of of just go out there and do it not to be put off I mean to compare it for instance to the the German culture I, in German culture you, you basically have to get you have, people think they have to have credentials to do certain pursuits certainly science and music are, are, <laughs> Uh, places where I think the average German thinks, well, if I, if I, if I'm finished my training and if I haven't done all the things along the right way and if I haven't got the right accreditation along the way, then then I, I obviously wasn't destined or made for this, and and they back off. Whereas I think there's there's a almost reckless, certainly sort of frontier style um, attitude in in the Australian culture, which is that any any person can can do this you just need to go out and, and try it and uh, of course that's a generalization in both cases because the Bert Sackmann the, who was the head of the lab I went to in Heidelberg his mantra was learning by doing basically he was an exception I think and, and, and really felt that you could just teach yourself to do things and and that really fitted my style of doing science and I think the more <laughs> if I can say Australian way of doing it which is basically get out the way I'm going to have a go at this and and uh, and we'll see see what we make of it so in the end uh, I actually believe that that there isn't a way to do science that there there are lots of ways to do science and in fact I would liken science to exploration and the point about exploration is that you 
you don't know what you're going to find and you don't know how you're going to find it and and there's inevitably many obstacles in your path trying to actually discover something new and inevitably the best way to to find something is to throw lots of alternative ways of of approaching the discovery process and since i think in the end most people settle most people have particular personalities let's say and and, and strategies for doing things that in the end what you want is as many different scientists using different methodologies as possible which also i think suits the australian way in in some sense because eventually you essentially haphazardly find uh, some brilliance then they will stand out i think the the more german way of doing this is to have a very structured approach and and very thorough approach to doing which is also of course another way of doing science that that has its advantages there's that aspect but there's also the aspect that i found quite interesting what you you said the evening of the salon um where you said i'm just waiting for someone to prove this wrong so that i can actually go after it again it's it's sort of like what happened to you with your phd isn't it there's two aspects to that i mean on on the one hand there's persistence and 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 not giving up which i i think also is something that pervades in the Australian culture. But there's also the, the fact that in, in science, the, essentially you put forward theories about what you think are going on, hypotheses about, um, that explain what, what you attempt to explain what you've seen so far. And essentially the quickest way to, to make progress on that is to try to figure out how you could disprove your hypothesis and it's always the case or nearly always the case i would say that advancement comes when you find some problem in your hypothesis i I think nature is just what it is of course and it's very complex and and no single person can particularly in in the biological sciences can just posit the whole thing and explain it from from their armchair as it were so you're in the business basically of positing something temporarily and then showing then proving that it's not right and and then from from the aspects that that should be a learning experience so the so if you've done your experiments if you framed the experiment in other words the questions that you're asking correctly then you'll find out the ways in which what you thought was true is not true and that's that's an advance and it's something that's uh it's very intrinsic to science. I think scientists immediately recognize this procedure. And I think your average person on the street doesn't necessarily recognize this. And they, they imagine that scientists know it all. Administrators, for instance, like to hear from scientists what their plan is and, and, and how they're going to discover this, 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 and this. They're going to have these and these milestones that's going to take them this long. They need this many resources and so on and so forth. And, but the reality is that the best question to the ones where you have no idea what's going to happen so you you frame a question such that uh, there's the maximum to be learned and and then you test the things you think you know and so from my point of view when when i get somebody in in my laboratory coming to me and they say well so we tried to do this and it it all failed we got something completely uh, unexpected from my point of view this is when i run down the hall saying eureka <laughs> it's it's not when we when we confirm something we already knew it's when we when we find that it isn't the way that that we thought it was now this is when i am maximally excited because this is when you know that that you must be onto something because it's not what you thought and that's when you're really learning in science i think it comes across as counterintuitive to the average person although it feels very intuitive within science and so it's one of the difficulties, I think, in trying to explain to people why you've got to look in this area where you know nothing. Mm. It, it, it's exactly where you're deficient in, in explanations is that, that you really need to look. Of course, we're talking in Germany, and the Chancellor, of course, Angela Merkel, is a scientist herself. Do you find that perhaps this even has an influence on the sort of money that's spent on research and support that you're given here? Yes, Germans support science wonderfully. I'm not sure to what extent it's dependent on the fact that the Chancellor was a, a scientist, but I, th- I think it's 
perhaps the other way around, that it, it reflects the stature of science in society, that a, a scientist could get to be chancellor. And, and certainly, uh, I think, as a, as a culture, they have great respect for knowledge. And uh, I think this goes back centuries in, in the German tradition. And, and, and every facet of what the German culture does is basically try to, trying to get the greatest depth of understanding of something and, and the best competence is seen as, as, a, as a virtue in German culture and 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 I, so I think science is automatically elevated in this context and, and that of course I think is reflected in the amount of money that they invest in the whole process of, of science. I mentioned already that I did go down and meet your team and it's quite a remarkable team. There are a couple of Australians there, there's I met an Israeli and an Indian and uh, people from all over the place. Of course this isn't, you're not there by yourself. So putting that sort of group of people together, you told me a little bit about just how incredibly impressed you are with the generation of people that are coming through now and, and just how equipped they are to carry out the type of research that you're after. It's a really international laboratory, as you say. I mean, I don't... Race is just not a factor in terms of choosing who comes to the laboratory. And and essentially, it. it, it we, we actually have, I think, three Israelis, uh, as you say, Australians, and, uh, of course, Germans as well, but uh, Egyptians, um, someone from Korea, uh, some Americans, and so on and so forth. It's people from, really from all around the world, and I'm just blown away by the, by the quality of, of researcher. Um, I've been, I think, very lucky for to get the people that have come to my laboratory the, the for instance the people doing the research on human neurons for instance uh, are simply rock stars by <laughs> by neuroscience standards that they they are just incredibly gifted in multiple expertises which is really the the one of the things i think that distinguishes neuroscience from most other scientific pursuits that it's, it's really a mishmash of lots of different capabilities because on the one hand you have to be able to deal with biological tissue and and possibly perform surgeries you need to understand basically a lot about the um, physiology and biology but on the other hand because it's a essentially a computational device that you're dealing with you also need to have some of the so-called hard science as a background so you need to understand uh, mathematics and computer science and and to some extent engineering and in, in our particular branch you need to ex- understand electronics and electricity per se but then there's there's room for people who've got a medical background and, and it always helps to to understand to have that perspective on things there if you've got any expertise in in psychology this is also an, an advantage uh, and of course now these days if you have if you're a physicist, then you've got advantages, say, in optics and in, mm. in, in microscopy in, in general. And that's become really a question not just of, of light, but of, of uh, dealing with, with devices such as lasers and, and, and so on. There's a lot of, of engineering that goes now into designing behavioral paradigms and... Uh, and the devices that you need to interact with that. And of course, genetics is just a huge part of neuroscience as in most biological sciences now. And, and that's a, a, so molecular biology is, is, a, is a field for itself as well. And there's basically nobody who gets trained in all of these in one, mm-hmm. in, in one university degree. So these are people that have accumulated this knowledge over more than a decade usually and, and are now and now like hen's teeth essentially the, the, to find people who can do all of these various things and, and then bring with it the necessary inspiration that you need to devise new experiments and, uh, and carry them out. So it even exceeds the kind of training you need to go through to be a musician. <laughs> I think by the time, I mean, you're not really able to do what the people in my laboratory achieve until you're in your mid-30s or so. A few gifted PhDs managed to do this in this le- in their late twenties, but basically, to get to this level of proficiency, 
in this field you've just got to invest loads or many many years of getting all the necessary expertise and all the necessary and what you were seeing were were people who who do this with a kind of nonchalance that that (laughs) is really impressive very impressive happy about the decision to sort of make life in in Berlin yeah I am um, so it's complicated somewhat by the fact that my wife works in a different city and and has done now for over a decade and and for the longest time my two beautiful daughters were growing up uh, in Munich mm. um, while I was commuting firstly from Switzerland to Munich and then from Berlin to Munich and so they've grown up in a in a German speaking environment and are completely and utterly bilingual. We, we speak English at home, but they uh, go to a German-speaking school and have German-speaking friends and so on. And so they feel completely comfortable in both languages. And I think that's a gift. I, I wish I had had that opportunity as, as a child. I really appreciate many aspects of German society. And so, you know, I, I, I guess that I don't see this as... as as any kind of disadvantage, quite the opposite. Um, if anything, the, the, the one thing I regret is that, that um, my wife and I couldn't, couldn't find jobs in the same city, and that's partly because we're both so ambitious in our own <laughs> spheres and, uh, and, and didn't want to compromise. So uh, it's looking more and more likely now that my wife, Heather, will come to Berlin, and, uh, and this will... So we're just about, I think, to start a... A new phase where where we neither of us is commuting, and uh, and and I think this will be better for family life per se. I, I, I don't say I would recommend um, commuting all the time. On the other hand, it's interesting. So the for me this meant that for the time that I was commuting, which was best part of, well just over a decade, this involved working very hard during the week. And then basically downing tools, and I was just just the dad when when I got there on the weekend. I, I mm. almost never ever did work mm. uh, on on the weekend, and I was completely there for for the family on the weekend. And actually, although uh, as I say, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, <laughs> it does have its advantages. It means that you can have absolute immersion. In both aspects, so so during the week I would, I would work very late at night in in the laboratory, which actually really helps in science because particularly in the branch that we're in, you're never quite sure how long experiments go for and 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 when you'll be needed for things. So it's really helpful if you can stay till midnight uh, if the experiment calls for that. And on the other hand, I think the this what what may happen in 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 let's say more traditional setups is that the you basically have to come home for dinner and uh, I remember this was my I remember my father was perpetually coming home late for dinner and my, my, this would really annoy my my mother but um, of course then then you're somewhat distracted and anyway the kids go to bed soon after that and when they're in the young at least and uh, so during the week there's not that much interaction with the kids and you know in German, in Germany at least, the, the the kids start school incredibly early. I think way too early. But uh, so they're they're leaving the house at about seven thirty in the morning, and uh, and so actually during the week, there's not much chance to have inter- really meaningful interaction with your kids. And and the fact that I could be there completely for the entire weekend and and uh, and really interact with them. I actually think had its advantages in the end. So, so even that, I'm not sure was was the the disadvantage that it seems at first. Are you happy about the direction of Australia when you look from outside in? 
Oh, another interesting question. Um, I can't say I'm entirely happy about the direction Australia goes now. Um, it's a funny thing. I I, I go back and and I get the, all of these in, impressions that I that I was just talking about, and and there's some such wonderful things about Australia. And at the same time, I start to feel more and more a foreigner in my own country, looking at at the things that are happening. Well, I, so I. I I really can't identify with the uh, what looks to me like a, a a kind of a racism that that I didn't realize when I was growing up. I, I I don't know to what extent that's because I was growing up and didn't see it, and and to what extent it's it's a new development in Australia. It feels to me like a new development that I didn't see that wasn't around when I was younger. But also I, there's an, there's another aspect of so another thing that's happened in Australia that, that I really noticed, that both my wife and I noticed, and it was kind of shocking, is everything got more expensive at some point in a way that... And, and the, that's perhaps not so shocking in some sense. I mean, why not? But the, 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 most, the most shocking thing about that was when we would go back and ask people about it. There were so many people who didn't seem to realise that mm. this had happened. And, and, and we, to us it was really clear because we weren't there most of the time and the money that... That, that used to go a long way when we went back on, on uh, to visit yes. the family, all of a sudden didn't go so far. And, and now it's got to such extreme proportions that, that, um, th- that I think Australia counts as one of the more expensive places in the world. So that, be that as it may, what, what, what I find kind of shocking is that the culture itself has embraced this. So I think the, the, the culture I left seemed to be one in which which being wealthy was something you didn't boast about and something you you didn't flaunt and and now i see it being flaunted more and more and uh and this i also don't recognize and don't really like in terms of a development in, in australian culture i mean i might be misinterpreting it but that's the way it appears from a distance I tend to ask people towards the end of our interviews to finish a couple of sentences for me. And the first sentence tends to be, when I think of Australia, I think of... Well, I think of... Uh, of uh, what, what impresses me every time I step out of the plane is that there's, there's no lid on the world, that, that, that the, the sky is just apparently infinite. This is always um, my first thought arriving back in Australia. Of course, the beaches and uh, and mostly, I suppose, the 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 weather and the and the climate is the first thing that comes to mind. And the other sentence that I always ask is, "I know I'm Australian when." Oh God! <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, when 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 I get back to Australia and and I uh, and I ring up some friends, the what I, I know that I'm Australian in that m- moment that they said, yeah, just come over here, you bastard. We've been looking forward to seeing you for so long. And it, it's, it's a kind of easy, uh, a, a, there's an easiness between Australians that, that I've not encountered elsewhere that, that, is, that is really, well, that's for me coming home is, when all the the shackles, what do I want to say? When when all of the the um, the normal kinds of ways you have to prove yourself in 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 other cultures can just drop, and you can just relax and and uh, and pretensions. I think you can just drop them, and and uh, I think this is an important aspect of of being Australian. The, the, I guess it's not true that we don't have our own pretensions, but but it feels like this anyway. Mm. Matthew Larkin, thank you so much. This has been remarkably interesting yet again. Such a great honour to meet you, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's all my pleasure. (laughs) Thanks.
Sydney-born neuroscientist Matthew Larkham speaking to me there. And all the musical excerpts that you heard during today's program featured the violin playing of Matthew Larkham. Now, if, like me, you are curious to find out more about Matthew's research, then do visit the Tall Poppies website, where you will find an array of links to his work. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do share it, either via social media or emailing the link. Once again, special thanks to the podcast sponsors. Your financial contributions make it possible for this project to continue. For those of you who might be considering sponsoring the podcast, thereby allowing me to continue my research, interviewing and production of this living archive, do drop by the Tool Poppies website, tool-poppies.com. And here's a direct link to the Patreon page, which makes donating to this project easy. www.patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. And Tall Poppies Talk is written as one word. That's patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. And don't forget to visit our website for more information about what I do. Tall-poppies.com or drop me an email at info at tall-poppies.com. It's been nice to have you with me today. Until next time, do stay well and stay safe. This is Brendan O'Shea saying goodbye from Berlin.